0: Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhez on SAFM. Anne Bernstein, Executive Director at the Centre for Development Enterprise, has spent some time with Monte Kalwalia, who is the former Deputy Chairman of the National Planning Commission of India, who at the time she had deduced some interesting moves that India had made to achieve her economic reform dating back to the early 90s. She'll talk to us now on and about Operation Volingal and how, if some of India's examples are followed, the operation will benefit everyone in South Africa and hopefully realize true economic reform. And I suppose the starting point is first to say good evening and thank you for joining us, and
1: Good evening. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you.
0: It's clear for all to see that South Africa's economy is not responding to South Africa's economic challenges and with that socioeconomic challenges. First things first, is there a general consensus that our economy needs a reform?
1: Well, I think there is a general consensus. Um, whether everyone agrees on the exact same reforms would be in doubt and whether there is the same degree of urgency that we need to change the economy as quickly as possible in order to start getting results. I think that's not uniformly agreed.
0: And to the extent that we are still going to be grappling with those issues, the general consensus itself is a moot point because it doesn't allow for any movement in that general direction to take place. Is that fair?
1: Well, I think that there certainly been far too little action taken in the last three years since President Ramaphosa took power. And I certainly would be arguing for much faster reform and for much a much bolder reform agenda. I think that what is possibly a ray of light is that the president has now backed Operation Vulandlela and people in his office and in the National Treasury, are trying to implement some of the reforms that have been on their list for action for for years now. And we need to see how this works out, but there is some action taking place there. And I think the budget that was tabled in February did indicate a firm resolve to an unambiguous set of decisions to halt the endless rise in the country's deficit and the terrible consequences that would flow from a full-blown fiscal crisis. So we aren't reforming nearly fast enough. I don't think there's sufficient sense of urgency, but there do seem to be some indications that finally um, the president and the the minister of finance are starting to move decisively to implement some reforms.
0: You mentioned three years, and I'm going to use three years as the benchmark then for, I suppose, some of the economic challenges this country is facing, stroke opportunity that should that it should be getting possibly missing. The collective optimism of just about this time three years ago when President Ramaphosa made his maiden Sona address following the resignation of the then president, the collective optimism, the hashtag Tumamina was high. Everybody was now singing Brahu's song. The president in his state of the nation abreast, did make the concession that for several years the economy had been stagnant and he spoke about the need to reindustrialize he spoke about serious investments and this is what this 100 billion investment over 5 years he's been seeking that's how it took shape he even had a jobs summit how in the 3 years has he not been able for the most part to respond to any of those From an industrial-scale perspective, one doesn't get the sense that South Africa is moving in the right direction, one. Two, job summit is not jobs. If anything, between then and now, jobs are worse in that unemployment is sitting closer to 40 than it is to 30. The commitments are just that, commitments. It's not cash in the South African bank for the South African bank, as it were, to work that money into the economy. Sold lots of hope. Very little has become reality.
1: I agree with that. I think that, let me start in a different place, in a way. Let's take unemployment. Everybody now sort of, since 2018, we've been talking and talking about jobs, jobs, but nobody wanted to deal with the fundamental policy issues. They somehow wanted to conjure up projects that would result in more jobs in an economy that was stagnant. I didn't believe it then, and it didn't deliver. In order to understand why South Africa is in such a bad position in terms of unemployment. We have to look at fundamental causes, and there are a number of these. We have a stagnant economy, we require reforms in order to get economic growth, and we have an economy that favours capital-intensive growth and not labour-intensive growth. We can't change that unless we start to talk about labour market reforms. Now, nobody wants to talk about this. It was on the list of the reforms of the Minister of Finance in 2019, August 2019, but it quickly disappeared. So, uh, in my view, we don't need summits. We took the wrong approach. We, we went for summits. We went for promises. We went for projects. We went for special initiatives, when what we should have done is say, this is hard, everybody, but we have to make some fundamental changes to the labor market so that's just one example of where i think words are one thing but you've got to actually make what the governor of the reserve bank has called the hard trade-offs we have to make some new policy decisions we can't just pretend if we keep doing the same thing that we're going to get better results and we're not even before COVID, Mm, mm,
0: mm. you're right Let's get to it then. Let's assume that we all agree that the capital-intensive growth of the country is not yielding the reality of the fruits that South Africans need. And many people would criticize them, Becky, years, that there might have been growth, but it was jobless growth. If anything, it was a concentration of capital, of big business and industry, to bring in the money, but not necessarily bring people
1: into the economy. Well, I'm going to disagree with that. Go for it. The facts are that we did not have jobless growth in the 2000s. We created over 2 million new jobs. So so that's a myth. Uh, did we create tons and tons of labor-intensive, you know, sort of low-skilled jobs? No. A lot of those jobs were for high-skilled people, but there were jobs for low-skilled people as well. So I don't buy that story of the 2000s. Of course, there was a commodity boom and South Africa was riding that wave. And then President Zuma came in and things started to get, you know, there was the global financial crisis and so on. Um, But I think it's a mistake to say that we had jobless growth. Lots of people say it, but it's not true.
0: Well, um, let's engage that only slightly. And I really want my listeners to come in here because I don't want to run out of energy and steam because I am talking to the executive director at the Centre for Development Enterprise. It is her fourth Bernstein. We're talking about how South Africa's reform through Operation Vulindlela can be significant in terms of giving us the yields from an economic perspective that we want. Of course, this is a partnership between National Treasury and the presidency, and Bernstein is on the line. She says... We need labor-intensive growth. We need to look at the labor market and see how we can ultimately, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, and but essentially it is that we need more people at work as opposed to more money in the post-capital intensive. But would that not have been the mandate of the reconstruction and development plan? We're going back to the 90s, right, because we're having a conversation about India who did something in the 90s. That is what the RDP was all about, reconstruction and development. Things changed two years in with rdp i mean with gear the growth employment and redistribution and that has been criticized by many across the board even Sam peter blanche has criticized how gear was implemented and why it should never have replaced the rdp which have been the very good start insofar as it relates to absorbing the labor and growth in the labor market particularly through public infrastructure or
1: you want me to comment? Yes, on this? yes. or disagree,
0: um, as the case may be.
1: Look, I disagree with that point of view. Um, GEAR did include labor reforms. They were never implemented. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not really interested in throwing sort of stones at people. The, the main point is this, that mm. South Africa in about 1996 decided to go on an economic route that was high skill and high wage. That was how we would reward trade union members, and somehow we would become a more high-skilled society. We didn't fix our education system. We didn't fix our training system, and we don't have a highly skilled workforce. This country has failed to do that for the last 60 years, and the democratic government has failed to do that as well. So we can't pretend Mm. that we have a highly skilled workforce and what we need are jobs for the workforce we actually have, most of whom through no fault of their own did not get a good education or skills training. So that would be my first point. You have to recognize Mm -hmm. what kind of society we are and we've paid and we've created conditions for organized labor that are just out of touch with with our competitive nations. Um, So we know that we pay civil servants more than almost every country in the world. Um, So we we haven't sort of linked wages to productivity, and our labor is expensive, as well as other conditions in our economy. We have extremely inefficient state-owned enterprises that don't deliver what the economy needs, And they're very expensive, and they're draining the fiscus. So there are lots of ways in which we have made this a very expensive environment in which to do business. And that's why we're getting less and less investment. And that means fewer and fewer firms and less and less jobs. So there are a whole lot of issues here that are fundamental to how we run our economy and how we think about our society. And we've been saying for a long time that we need to think differently about the government's attitude to business and to firms. You're not going to get rid of poverty. You're not going to get growth unless you have a very different and positive attitude to competitive markets and many more new firms.
0: What are those jobs? What are those markets? Where are those industries that will absorb these people looking for work? And this is probably a question that is secondary to the one of skills development. A case then surely has to be made for the need, you spoke about education, for training facilities that will allow the job seekers to be in a position to land work before landing work.
1: Absolutely. So, look, first of all, we have to get the economy growing. And at the same time, we need to look at the quality of skills training, and the quality of education. And we have to start with basic education. South Africa comes last in almost every comparative table about the quality of our basic education, reading, writing, and mathematic ability. This is outrageous. Poorer countries are doing much better than we are. So the quality of education, the quality of our skills training, we just haven't done well enough. It's a massive failure. We have to simultaneously grow the economy. You can't train lots of people and then you don't have jobs for them. That's a recipe for disaster. So we've got to focus on growth and how we get the country growing. Now, pre-COVID, everyone was talking about tourism, and I agree with them. This is an area of real potential for the country and an area where you can create lots of low or semi-skilled jobs. Obviously it's a problem now with COVID. We have been talking a lot about manufacturing. We don't know any country in the world that has not discovered oil, that has not gone through a phase of low skill and inevitably low wage manufacturing jobs. And South Africa needs to grab this opportunity before all these factories get mechanized. So but South Africa has said, no, these jobs are not good enough for us and We've watched other countries. Look at China. 25, 30 years ago, they they had very poor wages in the factories, but they were creating T-shirts and shirts and all sorts of products for the world. But it doesn't stay like that. Their wages have gone up dramatically in the last 25, 30 years, so that firms have now moved out of China to to environments where... They can get labor for, for less and where there are other kinds of opportunities. South Africa needs to grab that kind of opportunity because, you know, the alternative, we tend to think we, everyone needs a decent job, but the alternative to, to sort of getting a, a decent job, which often doesn't exist, is not, you know, a better job, but it's no job at all. And that's why we have one of the world's deepest unemployment crises. So we're saying, let's look at low-skill manufacturing, for example, and see if we can attract investors to, to build factories, to give work to people who've generally not had much work experience before. We could be supplying export markets into Africa and the rest of the world. And this is what other countries are trying to do. But we say, no, these jobs aren't good enough, as though unemployment is a better option.
0: Let's have a conversation with a public now, Miss Anne Bernstein, Executive Director at the Center for Development Enterprise. She says, a job is better than no job. Let's not worry too much about the decency thereof. What are your thoughts on just that question? What are your thoughts in relation to where the country comes from and exploitation, particularly in the workplace, that in many respects has come through to the fore again with employees being ultra-vulnerable in the workspace? The time is 2025. We're taking two calls. KGM first. He is now in Pretoria, getting closer to studios in Johannesburg. He hasn't moved from where he is. Mike after him in Newlands. KGM.
2: Good evening, songers. Good evening to your guest and to the listeners. Let me put it the way I understand it, the, the the best way I understand it, or the little best way, if there's anything like that. Look, what your guest is talking about is a rhetorical. I mean, you can invite her again next year, even 10 years later, she'll be talking the same thing. My, my view is this. The South African economic model was never created for the South African people to benefit from. It was meant to dictate how they should contribute to the economy, to the benefit of the peoples from across the oceans. She gives examples about the likes of China. When is China going to give the examples about South Africa? You know why this is happening, Songes? is because we, for the longest time, have been lazy. We've allowed people like your guest to tell us what to do when we know what we can do and what can benefit us. Now, I don't want to sound cynical or like um, being personal. My parting shot. We need to throw away all this, all this that your guest is talking about, this notion of looking across the oceans for examples or for solutions. It does not work. She can talk about pre- and post-colonial uh, rule or apartheid. The, 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 it's the same thing. The solution is here with us. The day we, we start, create, establish, and sustain our own socio-economic activities for our own economic structure, that's the day we're going to have the difference. Otherwise, we are just going to be listening to people like your guests and listening to the dictates from across the oceans. And if we don't tore their line, they will then sanction us economically and it will look like we are performing badly as it is the case right now. I'm not justifying or even forgetting the fact that we have the likes of politicians who are also worsening the situation for us. Songeso, thanks for taking my call.
0: Thank you so much, KGM. I'm sure Andy's going to respond to that. Mike, go for it.
3: Songeso, uh, good evening, good evening to your guest. Well, um, yeah, the, re- the reason that your guest is on the show tonight is because we have failed. And it's not about what... China wants or what the world wants. There's simple, basic economics involved here. There's no ideology. Well, that's unfortunately, that's our problem in our country. We have an ideology forced on us. But it's a simple case of who can manufacture a product that is cheaper than better than the next guy. We are just as capable of doing that in South Korea as the rest of the world. But ideologically, we are not allowed to do that. I employed 170 people. I decided that I employed... Uh, and then I imported baskets from China, simple wicker, little weaved baskets from China. I imported about, I don't know, 2,000 every two months. I thought, let me make them here. I tried to do that some Within three months, the union had shut me down because I was employing staff at half the rate that I could afford to pay them. Because I said, look guys, I can give you work. I don't want to send my money to China. Let's keep it in house. I can't pay you 50 Rand a day like everybody else or whatever it was, I'll pay you 20 rand a day. And people happily grasped the idea, and I said, it will grow with the business. Well, the unions quickly shut me down, and then if that wasn't bad enough, legislation came along and made sure that I was not going to succeed. So it's really quite simple. There's nothing, there's nothing fancy about this. It's not about listening to what happens in Europe. It's simple, basic economics. And unless South Africa wakes up to the fact that we need to produce a product that other people want at a price that they can afford, uh, we as a country will fail. And we are failing right now, and we are failing big time. Thanks very much, Sigizhoff.
0: Mm, thank you, thank you, Mike. I, I don't understand the guests to, in essence, be disagreeing with each other. It's just a question of how they've put their points across. How do you respond respectively to KGM, the first caller, and Mike from Newlands, the second? Anne?
1: Well, Sangeza, I'm not 100% sure what the first caller is saying. Um, he seems to dislike examples from other countries. I'm not suggesting that these are models we must follow religiously, but I'm saying that there are certain fundamentals. South Africa is a country that's integrated into the global economy, and we have to be competitive. And at the moment, the environment we have chosen to create through our policies is not competitive. So we can't produce goods that can compete with other countries' goods in in many areas. Some we are agriculture, for example, and some other things, but we have to do more. So our economy is kind of, well, it shrunk last year by 7%, and before COVID, it was pretty much stagnant for the last 5 to 10 years. This is just devastating um, because our population is growing, and so there's less and less for everybody. So I think there are some fundamental laws of economics. I agree with Mike. But South Africa insists on defying them, and that's why we're not getting investment. That's why we're not getting more firms expanding or even starting up and succeeding in South Africa, and that's why we're not getting employment. And we're not just doing badly. We're we're sort of below almost all other emerging markets. And I'm saying we have to look at the fundamentals in order to... Think more clearly about what has to be done. And your your first um, guest might not like that I have these views, but he didn't really tell us what else you can do. You can't sort of develop autonomously. That's not possible in the modern world. And anyway, we don't have the skills to do that.
0: Ghana's president um, recently has been making the rounds headlines and sort of is relatively popular given his position in how Ghana is engaging its economy vis-a-vis the Western powers. Not early in his term, he effectively told Emmanuel Macron that aid does not help, it does not work. We need something more bilateral, more something more transactional as opposed to one-sided. Recently speaking to the Swiss delegation, his counterpart, he told his counterpart that Ghana, henceforth, will not be exporting cocoa to Switzerland. We want to be exporting chocolate. What then, for the equivalent South African president, Ramaphosa, would be, we are no longer going to be doing what we have been doing when you talked about manufacturing because that's all we do and export out of the country materials that come back as finished product. What would South Africa then do, in line with what Mike was saying, that we've got the necessary skill we just need, to an extent, the political will to do so.
1: Well, this is an old issue. So let me put the, my view. Just because you've got cocoa in Ghana does not mean you have the expertise to make chocolate. These are very different activities. And it might sound obvious, but it's not the case. And Ghana might you know, be a fantastic place to grow cocoa and it's one of the few in the world and they should you know specialize in that if you want to get the skills to make chocolate so that you can be globally competitive not just make it but be globally competitive in making it so that people buy your chocolates and not swiss chocolates that requires a whole set of skills know-how is what professor ricardo Haussmann would call it so why does south africa have a wine industry We happen to get refugees who came to South Africa, Huguenots from France, who had the skills to grow grapes and to make wine. And that's why the Western Cape has, you know, it's one of the reasons why we have a world-class wine industry. You don't just say, I'd like a wine industry, let's have one. You actually have to have the know-how in people's heads on how to do this. So because South Africa has gold, it does not mean we know how to dig for gold or we used to know how to dig for gold in a competitive way and to then export it. That doesn't mean we have the skills to make gold jewelry. It would be nice if we had, but we don't have them. And you can't just conjure it up. So the government keeps saying we need local beneficiation and so on but they don't seem to appreciate how this actually works. South Africa does make products that are globally competitive. We do it in the defense industry, and we last year we were the second largest citrus exporter in the world. So we do produce things that are globally competitive. We don't produce enough things, and, and we need to understand what's required in order to manufacture new products. But it's exactly products. those
0: investments to which the, the, the print Ghanaian president, I just forget his name, Nana, is speaking of. We might not have that skill now. Switzerland at some point also never had it. They don't even have cocoa. They invested in the beneficiation of it, if you like, taking it to market. That is what Ghana wants to do. Surely investments in that, in the immediate, your point might stand, certainly not in the long term.
1: Well, but think of it this way. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just saying do they have the expertise to do it? So you can't just invent versus you know you can South Africa's tried we've tried to do various areas of beneficiation which haven't worked in the last twenty, thirty years. why Because you't you, you not only have to make the product, you have to be globally competitive. So how do we compete, for example, in diamond cutting with India that has a century old tradition of doing this and the expertise to do it? It would take us, what would it take for us to be better than them? That's what you have to be, better than them, competitive. And it might be much better to do something else. So this is part of how you think about growth in an economy. You don't just say we really want to have lots of women-owned businesses. I would also like that. But they don't. many of them don't exist today, and they're not competitive. And just saying we want them Doesn't get them, so you have to look at. We know how to do, um, you know, deep deep level mining. Okay, what's something where we could use the expertise of deep level mining, you know, to do something else? So it's close to that kind of expertise because we have that. You can't sort of jump to something else when you don't have that expertise.
0: Very well. Let's leave the conversation there. Thank you so much, Ms. Ann Bernstein, Executive Director at the Centre. Development Enterprise talking about Operation Volindel and how to reform the country's economy. To the extent that I disagree with her, I'm happy if we don't always see eye to eye, but certainly this point needs some discussion. The French Huguenots were not refugees. They were colonialists. The history is there. The lived experience, especially for the San and the Koi people of that region of Cape Town or Western Cape,
2: is there. Let's move on to the next story. 2038.